Good morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 14 today. And we are going to be reading a simple narrative, but one that has many themes going on simultaneously. I did not say there's a lot going on here, nor did I say there's many layers. I, 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 I chose new language, but you can always be sure with scripture that there is a, a multiplicity of things going on. So even though we were in Luke last week, we did, uh, last week we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, and this is, this is a story that immediately follows the uh, feeding of the 5,000. So we're in Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be starting at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat and the wind died down, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The word of the Lord. So as I said, we're, this follows immediately the feeding of the 5,000. And if we remember in the setup from that, we had had this introduction story about how the disciples had gone out in Jesus' name and they'd been ministering and they were excited to come back to Jesus and tell him all the things that they had been able to do in his name. We're very excited about that. And then we get this kind of aside about uh, Herod and Herod had executed John the Baptist and he hears about this and he's thinking this is John the Baptist come back from the dead that's why there's this miraculous power working so there's this kind of weird background to this and uh, as Jesus had wanted to give we know from Luke in his account Jesus had wanted to give his disciples rest from this intense time of, of ministry they had and to come together and kind of talk about what happened but instead they ended up with these crowds around them and he didn't have time to deal with them and they fed fed the crowd. So you're dealing with this situation where the ministry has just had profound success, but with profound success can come 
exhaustion. Ministry opportunities are great. You have the opportunity to speak into more lives. It's, it's incredibly energizing to see the word of the Lord work and transform lives. The disciples were rejoicing. They're like, we healed sick people, God. You know, in, Jesus, we healed sick people in your name, and they were healed. Very excited, but they're also, they've been giving out. Now it's time maybe for them to recharge, but they don't get that break because immediately there's this crowd. And, and so Jesus does this miracle to feed the 5,000. And then we get to this story, and, and it starts with an interesting statement that you might, in the NIV, it's fairly bland. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. He ordered them to. In Greek, it's he compelled them to. He's like, get in the boat. Go. And that's it's kind of a little weird, but um, he's distancing them from the crowd. He's making them... He's like, I'm going to take care of this crowd here. I'll disperse the crowd. You guys start to go away. Um, not that he's kicking them away from him, but he is sending them off by themselves so they can begin to get some of this rest. So it's, it's, he's very forceful about that. And then he dismisses the crowd. He tells the crowd to grow. And he goes up on the hillside himself to pray by himself. Good, good lesson in there for any anybody in ministry. You do need to take that time by yourself to pray to recharge. And as he's praying, we get it, it mentions a couple times that he can see the boat rowing out on the lake, and he can tell the wind is against it, and he can see they're having difficulty struggling against the wind. But he stays where he is and prays, and that's kind of interesting because he knows he knows they're in difficulty. But he, but he stays where he is and he prays. And then shortly before dawn, uh, he gets out and he goes to the water, goes to them on the water. And if, if you've ever heard the phrase, it's darkest before the dawn, th this is the darkest part of the night. These guys are tired because they've been rowing against the wind all night. It's stormy, there's waves, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And their first reaction is, it's a ghost! It's like, great, we're about to sink. And now there's a ghost. And uh, I don't think they're thinking of a friendly, like, Scooby-Doo villain ghost. I think they're just really wondering what's going on here. Well, it's kind of curious that, that Jesus, like, sees them struggling, but he still stays up on the hillside. But it's only curious if you haven't been following along the story of the gospel. This is actually occurs after the famous trip in the boat where Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storms come up and they're like, hey, master, don't you care we're drowning? And he wakes up and he rebukes the waves and the wind and uh, says, you know, don't, don't you know what you're part of now? So he's already given them that lesson. So I think part of why he was on the hillside, maybe not going out, is that he's like, I've, I've already taught you a lesson about this. Let's see if you take it. Now, in the parallel accounts, um, to, we're reading from Matthew here, but in the accounts in John and Luke, when he goes out on the water, it actually says he was going to pass by the boat. He wouldn't even go into the boat. But it's because they've already dealt with this. Now, there's some really cool things going on in this imagery of the storm. The language used to describe the wind and the waves, this is water as chaos. If you're a good Jewish boy hearing this story, 
you're going to think of the water at the time of creation before God brings order to the world. This is the chaos that existed before God brought order to the world. This is also that same chaos that when man's wickedness had gotten so bad in terms of murder that God let it be unbounded and let it take over the whole world in Noah's flood. That's that same language. And you're supposed to think about this. You're supposed to think of that as this is that force of chaos. So when you see Jesus just strolling out through that, this is actually casting him and making you think about God as the one who tames that chaos. And this is picturing Jesus as that. And it's going to get really stronger because when they say it's a ghost, and again, in the NIV, the translation is, I mean, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. What he actually says is, don't be scared. I am. If you're a good Jewish boy and you read that, I am, you realize Jesus is making a God statement right there. He's like, don't be scared. I'm God. Take courage. Don't be afraid. And then we get Peter. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, this isn't Jesus' idea. This is Peter's idea, but God honors it. And he says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts heading towards him. And then he sees the whip, the wind, sees the storm, and he begins to sink, and he begins to cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately grabs him, and you get this statement, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? In, in the tradition I grew up in, there was kind of this understanding that the more faith you had, you know, the bigger things you could do. But that's actually not the biblical picture. Jesus said, hey, if you have faith like a mustard seed, if you have a tiny bit of faith, you can tell a mountain to go cast itself in the sea and it'll happen. So when he's making this statement here, he's not criticizing. Another way to read it without really doing violence to the purpose here is, you had a little faith, what happened? It's like, Peter, you, you were doing okay. What, what happened? And what happened is, of course, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. Now, everybody likes to focus on this because we like to... But where were all the other disciples? They're in the boat. People are like, oh, that Peter, he doubted. He was the only one that <laughs> thought, oh, if this is the thing that God's doing, I want to be part of it. Peter... For all his faults, and this is why I love Peter, and I love Peter because of his faults, because that is of enormous comfort to me, because it's like, oh, you can be a disciple and still screw up every second thing you do. Um, I, I take great pleasure in that. Indeed, I, I seek to conform myself to that godly standard sometimes, um, because I figure if I'm only screwing up every other thing, I'm doing pretty good. But Peter always wants to be where Jesus is. And he's like, if Jesus is doing this, I want to be part of that. And Jesus honors it. And you can see this because in any story that we normally kind of read as a failure on Peter's part, we can forget to see the part of it that shows how much Peter had knit his heart to Jesus. We always, we know about Peter, you know, Lord, if everybody else turns away from you, I won't. And Jesus has to tell him, hey, 
before the cock crows this morning, you're, you're going to deny me three times. And we know about that denial. But the only reason that Peter was in that position to deny Jesus is because when everybody else ran away, he followed and he went to the high priest's household and he was standing there. And yeah, his courage did fail, but, but he went a long way because he wants to be where Jesus is. And we're going to have this really cool story which mirrors this one. After, in, if, you've got, uh, if you want to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 21, this is after Jesus' resurrection. And the disciples have gone back to Galilee and gone back to fishing. Uh, partly because Jesus had told them he'd meet them in Galilee and partly because that's what they knew to do. And uh, we get in chapter 21, verse 4, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. This is Peter. He's getting out of the boat again to go see Jesus. Peter always wants to be with the Lord. Paul will rightly rebuke Peter because he gets into that situation where he's been going, he's been with the Gentiles, but when certain people come from the church in Jerusalem and James, then Peter withdraws because he's He's worried about how he's seen. That is, that is Peter kind of falling down again. But the main point there was Peter went out to the Gentiles. Peter was the first person to preach to the Gentiles. When the rest of the church was still keeping everything to the Jews, or to converts, because Philip did go to the Ethiopian eunuch, but he was already a convert to Judaism, Peter's the first one to go, okay, centurion's house, I'll go. God showed me I shouldn't call anything unclean. And he has this heart. He, he falls down constantly in the execution of it. But he has this heart that wants to be with Jesus and wants to be where Jesus is doing things. And whatever Jesus is doing, Peter wants to be part of. So if we go back to Matthew and we get back to this situation of, of Jesus walking out to them on the water... And Peter wanting to be part of that. And Jesus says, come. So he gets out of the boat and he gets, he starts walking on the water. And he is walking on the water. In fact, he's walking on the water so far that by the time he begins to get scared, he's close enough to Jesus that Jesus can just reach out and grab him. So he went a good ways. And it says what, what threw him was that he saw the wind and the waves. Now, I'm not sure there's anything about the physics of, of wind and waves that makes it harder to walk on the surface of water when it's windy and wavy than it is to walk on the surface of the water normally. It's, you gotta, you gotta kinda try and get in Peter's mind there and it's like, well, you know, I, can, I believe I can walk on water if Jesus calls me, but not if the forecast is bad. Yeah. 
And that can kind of be our lives, too. We forget that the way we're called to live, even in normal times, is a miraculous way of life. The way of life Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, when he tells us things like, you know, love your enemies, pray for those that despitefully use you. When we get instructions from Paul, consider others better than yourself. You know, each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That's not a normal way to live, even in the best of times. Even when everything's going right, it requires a lot of faith and miraculousness to live that way. Well, the world isn't usually going right. Usually there is opposition, there's chaos, there's war, there's trouble. And it can be tempting. Sometimes people will say things like, well, you know, this this Christian way of living is all well and good once you've got everything in hand, but sometimes you just got to be tough and be real. And you got to deal with the world, you know, you got to deal with it in in a tough, realistic way, and then you can go back to living like Jesus. The world has never been tougher than Christians on Christians than it was in the first 300 years. We're not talking not being allowed to people making fun of you because of the bumper sticker on your chariot. We're talking you being put to death, not being allowed to buy food because of what you believe. But it was precisely because the early church lived out the gospel like that, that they overcame that and they transformed society. They changed the world. And those changes last till today. Now, one of the problems the church has, and I've said this before, is the world has this tendency to think, well, everybody's kind of good at the basis. You know, you don't, need, you don't need religion to be good. But they can only say that because they live, because they live in a world that has been saturated for 2,000 years by a, by a Christian ethic. There's a, there's a British historian named Tom Holland, and he's not a Christian. Um, he's, he greatly admired the classic world. He still does. He admired the Greeks and the Romans. But he, he recently wrote a book where he talked about the way our values in society today all come from the Christian ethic because he said as much as he wanted to, as much as he admired the Roman and Greek world, he saw there was no way you could get the respect for life and the concern for other humans from that philosophy, that it didn't exist before the church, that things that we would consider unthinkable today were just routinely thought of um, by by the best minds in those societies, that it wasn't that respect for other humans is not a basic part of life. They, they really thought that part of creation was that some people had worth and some people didn't. So this idea that made the world the livable place it is today came from us, and it came from us in the worst of times. Amidst the waves, amidst the wind, the biggest waves, the biggest wind, People kept their eyes on Jesus and kept walking in those ways.
they had a little faith and they didn't doubt. So I was really pondering this this week just because of what everything that's been going on in the news. And it can be, when, when things come up that are so global in scale and so far away, it's, it's very hard to know as a Christian, you know, what we can do. Absolutely, we always, we always hold things up in prayer. But we also have to continue to be salt and light where we are. If the world is dark and chaotic in spots, we have to be light in the spots where we are. And that means looking differently. It means living out the Christian ethic. It means when we disagree with people, when we profoundly disagree with people, we still recognize that that is somebody that bears the image of God. And so we don't create labels to make them an other, but we treat them as another image bearer of God who we just disagree with. When we make our arguments and we try and explain to people why we believe they are doing things the wrong way, we stand with Peter and we remember to make our kindness and reasonableness evident to everybody that sees us. Because what we're reacting to is Jesus who's out on the water, not the wind, not the waves. And we're getting out of the boat with Peter. And we're going to blow it because Peter blew it and we're not better than Peter. And we're going to lose our temper sometimes. And we are going to be less than Christian in the way we relate to people. And people are going to get under our skin. But just like Peter, we've just got to get back up and start walking that walk again and realizing that you can stumble a hundred times and still be a cornerstone that the church gets founded on. And that's all of us. You know, Scripture talks about us as living stones being built together into an edifice for God. And each stone has its place. You may be in a big church that's well-known. You may be in a tiny church that's not well-known. You still have that place. You're still one of the stones that holds up the whole church. If you fall down, if you do badly, that's why we have that 70 times 7 forgiveness. You get back up. You follow Peter. Peter. 